what a good morning it is to be in the house of the Lord, to be with the church. And so let us fold our hands, close our eyes, bow our heads, and let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your church. Thank you for uh, the teachers in children's church that are going to tell us about Jesus. Lord, help them show us Jesus. Uh, be with us and let us learn about your, your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. See you later. Well, again, welcome. Good morning. Um, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, Dr. Dave, who's the senior pastor, is off visiting grandchildren. Uh, on that note, please do be praying for uh, Jill and for Sam Silvernail. Uh, they, uh, Dr. Dave was um, planning on going to see them, uh, but uh, they ended up going up to Pittsburgh instead because uh, Sam and Jill are having a hard time. Um, their uh, daughter, Cadence, spent many weeks in the NICU um, because of being premature, so continue to pray for them. Um, she just needs to grow a little bit, uh, grow stronger, and so uh, it's a hard time uh, with a newborn, so be, be praying for them. As we turn our attention to uh, God's Word, please turn with me in your Bibles to Job. Um, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, Dr. Dave seems to like to assign me lots of chapters to, to cover. We'll be in chapters uh, 20 to 24, so five chapters, and since it is quite long, uh, we'll be hitting highlights as we go. But first, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come uh, to this passage, Lord, we are mindful of uh, the conflict between Job and his friends. And we're also mindful that we often tend to be more like the friends than like Job. And Lord, as we uh, dig into these passages, Lord, we ask that you would be our everything, as we just sang that um, we would embody you, that we would be animated by uh, your gospel and by you, that we'd become more uh, like Jesus than like Job's friends. And so, Lord, show us your gospel. Show us your son. Uh, would you transform us by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I like to start my sermons off with a little bit of uh, congregational participation it helps me know that you haven't already fallen asleep. Um, so quick show of hands. How many of you have ever had an argument that lasted so long that you do not remember what you were arguing about in the first place? Anyone? Okay. For those of you that uh, have not experienced that, I ho hope that will remain true. Um, but... For those of you, I've, I've actually done this a lot when I was a teenager. Um, so if you haven't had that experience, basically what happens is that as you sort of argue, you begin to like wear down. You just get tired and you're just like, oh. And what ends up happening is that as you talk, you begin not talking to each other, but to sort of this nether region like into the air. You're basically not talking to each other, but past each other. And uh, so you end up not listening as well. 
and you end up you give up uh, trying to convince the other side of your point of view. And as we dig in ever deeper, the frustration begins to mount. And then at some point, the goals and the context of the argument sort of seem to drop away and have been lost. And now it become, it, it's simply an argument about winning. You just want to win. And it's no longer about whatever you started arguing about in the first place. And it's a really a sad transition because we started off wanting to build consensus, to share feelings, to redress wrongs. We started off wanting relationship, to comfort, to help, to get to a better place. But we end up squaring off and fighting. And it's exhausting and demoralizing. And when we get to chapters 20 to 24, that's what's happened to Job and his friends. We're straddling the end of the second cycle of speeches from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And um, uh, we've come also to the beginning of the third and last cycle. Last week, we saw Bildad at his worst. This week, we've got Zophar and Eliphaz again. And rejoice, because next week, we finish up this format of dueling speeches between uh, Job and his friends, that we're not going to be sort of dueling speeches forever. Um, and also, um, we don't hear from Zophar again, actually. This is the last time we'll hear from him. He gives up after 20 chapters, and uh, we don't see him in the third cycle. And as we turn our attention to the text for today, we're going to see that long gone are the attempts at help and rebuke. The arguments from the friends are getting increasingly simplistic, and personal if they haven't already been there, but they're getting increasingly so. They're running out of steam. They're resorting to rehashing tired arguments that have already not worked to move Job at all. And so they're simply wearing, trying to wear Job down, to beat him down with insults and false charges so that, they, that he will capitulate and they will win. And on a side note, I've structured the sermon around the four-chapter gospel of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, distilled down into four smaller words, ought, is, can, and will. And so see uh, for you children and those of you with uh, shorter attention spans or those of you that like sort of scavenger hunts, uh, be on the lookout for those words. So look with me uh, as we dig into chapter 20, verses 4 to 7 talking about the friends and how, uh, stuck, how they can get stuck in how things ought to be. Do you not know that this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Now, by now, if you've been here the last several weeks, this is familiar and getting repetitive. Zophar simply rehashes his position that the wicked will suffer and sort of implies that the righteous will um, receive blessings. But at least we see a little bit of progress. There's a tiny bit of progress in, in that Zophar concedes that the wicked do indeed mount up to the heavens and prosper. But he stubbornly insists that 
By the end of their days, they will perish and be destroyed for their wickedness. And if we were to skip ahead, if we skip ahead to Eliphaz's speech in chapter 22, we see more of the same, just more personal and more desperate. Look with me at chapters, uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your way blameless? It is, for your, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil, that is Job's, abundant? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. After having gone around and around and around and made no progress with Job, Eliphaz seems so desperate to win that he just starts making stuff up. Did you see how he charges Job with being a heinous oppressor in verses 6 to 9? Job has taken the clothes off his brother's back and given no water to the thirsty. He even preys on widows and orphans. What? Does Eliphaz even remember who Job was before all of this happened? Does he even know his friend at all? I mean, come on. Job was a pillar of the community back in chapter 1. He was blameless. He was lovely. He was a great man. And how do, how do they end up here, where he is making stuff up about his friend? There seems to be a stubbornness or a stuckness to the friends. They're committed to the system of retribution theology, committed to the way they think things ought to be. They're inflexible because this is what's right. We're, why should I have to bend if I'm right? You're wrong. You're the one that needs to change. They're not going to budge on what they view to be right and the truth. And really, they're not all that wrong. God should punish the wicked and bless the righteous. That'd be justice. And so they're inflexible because they're not willing to budge on what they believe to be right and true. The problem is that they rail against Job because of the way things ought to be, and they don't take into account the way things actually are. That they and we live in a sinful, broken, and especially messy and fallen world. Friends, when Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar speak, they're demanding full justice, full stop. They don't take into account, but they don't take into account that if God were mechanically just, right, just sort of here's sinfulness, so I'm going to destroy it. Here's righteousness, I'm going to bless it. If he were mechanical in that way, as they think he is, then they and all of humanity are doomed. Their very lives, the lives of these friends who think self-righteously that they are right, their very lives are a testimony to the forbearance 
not the righteousness, not the justice, but the forbearance of God, who did not just immediately crush Adam, Eve, and the rest of mankind for their sins throughout the ages. You see, sin is in fact a lot worse than we think. It's infinitely bad, and so it deserves infinite wrath. And so when we think of sin, we think of it, oh, it's not that bad. You know, I lied over here. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It didn't really hurt anybody. But these friends have in fact undersold their own sin and its consequences in their ridicule of Job and his sin. But they're right, actually. This is the way that things ought to be, that wickedness get destroyed and righteousness get blessed. But that's not the way that they actually work, which brings us to Job's response in chapter 21. Job here contends that things don't work out the way they ought to. That's not the way that the world currently is. Job looks out at the world and doesn't see an orderly and just one. Rather, he sees its brokenness, its fallenness, and injustice. The world is not fair, and it's plain to him and really everyone else. Look with me at verses 13 to 17 and 28 to 30 of chapter 21. They, that is the wicked, spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them. That God distributes pains in his anger. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony? That the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath. Things do not work out the way that they ought. Furthermore, as Job looks out on this brokenness, he's confronted by the problem of pain. Look with me at uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out, of the, out to their toil, seeking gain. Game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked, without clothing, and with no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. How can God allow this kind of suffering? Where is the justice? Where is the judgment against sin? Where is the good, all-powerful God in the midst of all of this terrible suffering? What is he doing? Job can't seem to see him, and that really bothers him. He's feeling the tension between what he believes ought to be and the reality of what actually is. In short, Job is feeling the alienation from God that the fall brings. Look at chapter 23, verses 8 to 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. 
On the left hand, where, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But Job isn't rejecting God here. He's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. He's asking for the presence of God to come near and to deal with the brokenness of this world. He's crying out, Lord, come quickly. It's a cry of distress that all of us have made at one point or another. And why? Why do we call out in this way? We call out because we have come to the end of ourselves and found that the circumstances that we face are far beyond our own strength to endure. The sin and curse this world are subjected to ultimately, ultimately lead to death and to destruction and to suffering. There is no hope outside of God's intervention. Remember a couple of weeks back, the last time I was preaching to you all, I laid out the bleak picture of a life without God, which is devoid of purpose and meaning. Well, there's no hope for justice or salvation either, apart from God. There is only weeping and gnashing of teeth apart from God. Why? Because this world brings suffering. But even as Job cries out to God, which is something he ought to do, he ends up setting his eyes and his expectations of God far too low. So what do Job and his friends actually expect of God? Well, it's basically earthly changes. Over and over again, Job's friends have counseled Job to repent for the blessings, not for the righteousness. They expect earthly blessings and curses within their own lifetimes for the righteous and for the wicked. Everything centers around our present experience. That's the friend's perspective. Everything happens in this life. And Job isn't actually all that much different. While he does appeal to the Lord, he does so with an eye towards personal vindication. And yet two weeks ago, we saw that even vindication, personal vindication, is swallowed up by death and time, the two great equalizers and erasers that man inevitably faces. Personal vindication is also all about our present experience. That I am vindicated, that I am right, that God recognizes that I am right, really deals with my present experience. And so Job wants to be delivered from his misery, but he doesn't really have an eye towards the real issue. And obviously, God has a different perspective and a different agenda and a different plan. You see, Job and his friends have certain expectations of God, but God has far different expectations of what can be done for Job and his circumstances. From God's perspective, focusing on present worldly or earthly circumstances doesn't really get you very far. Rather, he has the long term in mind. He doesn't want to deal with just or only the presenting issues or symptoms but rather the root causes. And the real issue isn't suffering in this life. The real issue isn't the plight of the poor or even the injustice that we see throughout this life. No, the real issue is sin, which causes brokenness, fallenness, and suffering due to the curse and judgment against sin. Every aspect of our suffering 
has its root in sin. Maybe not our sin directly as Job and his friends expect, but still sin nonetheless. And that's worth saying again. Every aspect of our suffering is a result of the curse and the fall. It is when we see that reality and have a gospel worldview that our present suffering is put into the proper perspective. We are sinners through and through, and we deserve nothing but judgment and destruction. The friends are right in saying that Job deserves all that he gets. While he is blameless for this particular calamity, he is by no means sinless. And that means at the end of the day, Job stands condemned. And yet God was not content to leave us in our sinfulness and suffering as a result of the sinfulness in this world. He was not content to leave us broken with our original sin. No, he's not aloof. No, he is not just over there not paying attention. He's not the aloof God that the problem of pain charges him to be. He's in fact active and involved. He's stepping into our situations, both suffering and flourishing, rich or poor, whatever your circumstances may be, he's stepping in and he's not coming for the upright and blameless, but rather he's coming to seek and save the lost. And so that translation, the translation means that he's coming for the wicked, for those that are deserving of wrath, which if we stop and think of it, is all of us. And so God answers Job and his friends with his son, Jesus. Jesus brings justice and suffering for all of our wickedness. But the amazing grace is that it does not fall upon us, but it falls upon him, that we might be transformed and redeemed and united to him. You see, that's our problem is that we are not with him, and that we are not for him. We were made for God, but our sin alienates us from him and keeps us from doing what we were made to do, which is to both glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our suffering stems from our separation from him, and no amount of worldly blessings or personal vindication can remedy that. And so this is the beauty of our four-chapter gospel. It recognizes that there is a way that things ought to be, but it is not currently that way. But through Christ, we can be redeemed and look forward to what God will do to redeem not only us, wiping away tears from our eyes and dealing with our present circumstances and dealing with our, ex our personal experiences, but also for the creation as well the new heavens and the new earth where a sinless people of God dwell in intimacy with him is what we as Christians look to God for. Our expectation is not personal and narrow and timely. Our expectation is not only that, but also cosmic in its view. And that security and certainty that God will do what he has promised to do in Revelation helps, gives us help in our present circumstances. And so, friends, what do we expect? Do we set our eyes too low? Have we contented ourselves with hoping for changed earthly circumstances and vindication? Do we hope that the Lord will simply say, yes, you were right, 
Or do we expect suffering because of a gospel worldview that tells us that we will receive the same treatment that the master did? Do we expect to suffer because we want to be more like Christ, the suffering servant? Or do we see, do we see our troubles and issues within the scheme of what God can and will do in this world to demonstrate his grace and mercy to a fallen and sinful generation and creation? And if we're honest... The answer is not, yes, I am with God. The answer is, I am probably more like the former, that I set my eyes far too low. And it's probably because I'm not as much like Jesus as I ought to or want to be. Rather, I'm much more like Job's friends, concerned about my own comfort and my own flourishing. I usually think in earthly terms, I often want the blessings more than the one giving them. And also, I tend to get stuck in what I think ought to be. I get so stuck in what I think ought to be that I forget to consider how things actually are. Look, we spent most of our series in Job empathizing with the plight of Job and his suffering, specifically in his blameless suffering. And we spent most of this series seeing how Job's suffering points us to the gospel, and that's good and right. But if I'm really honest, that's not who I identify with in the story. I'm much more like the friends than I care to admit, the ones who are standing there lobbing truth grenades and lobbing condemnation and lobbing sort of self-righteousness onto sinners. You see, we like to have clean, definitive living. This is right and that is wrong. We like to know where we stand on, we like to know that we stand on the side of what is true and just. We like to stand and proclaim what is righteous and godly to the sinners of this world, just like Job's friends. Because when we simply proclaim the truth, it's clean, it's easy. I get to stay where I am, over here where it's safe. We can even find Bible verses that seemingly justify this approach of proclaiming truth. So I can stand over here and lob those truth grenades and calls for repentance at those poor, miserable sinners over there. And isn't it ironic that I'm a preacher doing exactly the same thing to you? And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for proclamation of truth, for calls to repentance. But I am saying that we often use those as a shield between us and the hard work of loving sinners, of actually being with them while they are yet sinners. When we do this, when we stand over here where it's easy and comfortable and clean, we tend to be inflexible and judgmental when things get messy, and we don't like messy. We don't like living in tension with others, particularly others that we think are sinful. It's a lot of work reaching out, biting our tongues, and bearing with sinners as they sin. Everything in us just wants them to see it our way and to change and to live righteously. But like the friends, we quickly and easily wear out and we end up where Job and his friends are, entrenched, frustrated, and angry. And we see this from both sides of the aisle, from both sides of whatever issue you want to name. 
Each side is convinced of their righteousness. Each side has spent months, years, and decades hurling insults and pointing out flaws. At this point, we've devolved into one of those marathon arguments that we've talked about at the beginning of the sermon. We're no longer listening to each other, seeking to care and to comfort. We're no longer seeking real and effective change in the other side. Now we're simply just trying to win by bludgeoning the other side into capitulation. But this is folly, not simply because no one likes to be caricatured and accused, but because this is based on works religion. When we look at the arguments of Job's friends and even Job himself, we find that the calls to repentance are really just calls to try harder to be better. Come on, Job. If you just clean yourself up a little bit and stop being such a terrible person, God will bless you. The problem with that is Job is blameless. He didn't do anything to warrant this particular suffering. And even then, as one of the best, most godly, and most blameless people in the whole Bible, he still doesn't stand up to the standard of perfection. He's blameless, not sinless. He's tried to be as good as he possibly could. What does it even mean to, be tr to try to be better than Job? Can we be better than Job? He's about as good as they come. They don't come much better than Job. And from Job's perspective, trying harder to be good doesn't guarantee anything. What he's going through makes that abundantly clear. His issue isn't his sin, but the fact that suffering and fallenness is part of the human condition. And so as we bring this into the 21st century, what are our expectations for others as we watch them suffer, especially non-Christians? Are we telling them to try harder to be better? Are we calling them to repentance under their own strength? Are we calling them to a life of holiness when they don't have the one who enables them to live such a life? After all, we couldn't do it on our, on our own. Why should we expect them to? If we are all that, and I imagine that we are more than we care to admit, then we stand with Job's friends not with God. We're calling people to morality and works and wrongly confident that our counsel will lead to meaningful change. And so let's be explicit about this so that we can't let ourselves off the hook. Christians have historically been terrible about this with the LGBTQ community. And before our hackles rise, let us take a moment to step back and look broadly at how things have gone. Has the church stepped toward these sinners with the loving, caring discipline of Christ that restores and brings life? Probably not. And if that doesn't resonate with you, most of you in this room are parents. How often have we asked our young children to obey us and not help them to obey when they don't have a fully developed brain to actually do that obedience? where we demand something from them that they can't and we're unwilling to step into their messiness to help them, to walk with them. This was me this morning in the annoyance with my children when they don't listen. They can't. And I'm not willing to meet them where they are. 
gosh darn it, they should listen to me because that's the way it ought to be. But I'm not willing to meet them where they are so that they can get to someplace better, so that they can learn obedience. We can't just leave sinners over there keeping things to themselves. Why? We can't ignore them either. Why? Because they need Jesus. If we keep to our holy huddle, then we're just saying that we want them to change before we step into their lives to show Jesus. That's asking them to make us comfortable. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus stepping into what is uncomfortable for him into the sin and muck and martyr of this world so that he might bring life. What sinners desperately need is for us to embody Christ to them, to step in and bear with them as the Holy Spirit works in their hearts and on their hearts to suffer at their hands so they might see Jesus suffering for them in us. This is what Paul means by filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings in Colossians 1. We who have Christ have been enabled by Christ to have the same heart and mind of Christ, to love the lost and to desire to suffer graciously for them. And so if we are to be a people of the gospel, we must see what Christ has done for us first. We must see the wonder of the holy God of the universe entering into our flesh to be with us in our sinfulness and brokenness. That's the gospel. He didn't wait for us to get better. He came while we were yet rebels, yet sinners, yet traitors to him. We must give those who are hurting, suffering, and sinning that same picture of a Jesus that meets them right where they are in the middle of their sin, that he might work righteousness in them and begin to sanctify them of their sins. That is our hope, that Jesus would change people when we can't. So let us embody Christ that we might give them a glimpse of who they desperately need. That is how we will change this world through suffering, and through pointing to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we stand not often on the side of you, desirous to step into hard things, to step into sin, to bear with sinners, but we stand often with Job's friends, calling upon folks to try harder to be better, calling upon them to change without the change giver. And Lord, as we look upon our lives, as we look upon the way in which we call others to change, I pray that you would first enable us to show them Jesus, to show them the one who came and did it first, that we might be people of the gospel, that we might show a world the savior that they need through the suffering that we endure that mirrors his suffering for us. And so, Lord, as we live this life in suffering as well, we cry out, Lord, come quickly because we're terrible at this. Make us, change us, transform us by the power of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.